This is The Good Life in Early Life, a production of Nebraska Extension. I'm your host, Emily Manning, an early childhood extension educator in Seward County. Our guest today is a licensed mental health therapist with early childhood clinical specializations in child-parent psychotherapy, parent-child interaction therapy, and teacher-child interaction training. She has spent nearly 30 years in the fields of education and mental and behavioral health working with children, adolescents, and families. Welcome to the show, Carrie Gottschalk. Thanks for having me, Emily. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we are so happy to have you on The Good Life and Early Life today. And if you've listened to the show before, you may know that I always ask my guests about a funny story about them or their favorite memory from their childhood. But I thought that since today we're talking about behaviors, I wanted to ask you, what is a funny story about you misbehaving as a child? Or when was a time that you misbehaved and it was handled well by an adult? I can think of very specific stories, but they're all from adolescence. And so I'm not really going back, back far enough to childhood, but I don't have something specific, but I can say that I was an incredibly dishonest child. (laughs) I got in trouble all the time. I do know that I got in trouble all that. That was probably the number one reason I got in trouble the most frequently, frequently is because I, I was not a particularly honest little person. (laughs) Oh, okay. So there you go. That's me. (laughs) Hey, well, I appreciate your honesty now. Thanks for that. Now I wanted to share mine with you. So I also I was ornery. I just like to test boundaries when I was little. So I was also in trouble a lot. And um, in kindergarten, especially, I think I was having trouble transitioning into the classroom setting. And I didn't have any siblings. And so I'd never really shared with anyone. And we were all sitting at circle tables. And we had all of our supplies out in the middle of the table. That's not why I got in trouble. But it's it's relevant later on. Um, I got in trouble for talking too much and talking too often. And so my kindergarten teacher moved me to my own little desk facing the wall and I got to have all of my supplies right there. I didn't have to share them with anyone. And I was just (laughs) loving it. But my grandma came for grandparents day and she was livid that I was sitting by myself. So she talked to my teacher and then my teacher was like, okay, Emily, like we'll give you a second chance to be back in like with everybody else. You just have to not talk. (laughs) And here I am. I'm like, well, I don't want to go back to this table. I'm like, you just gave me a recipe for how I'm going to get myself back to my nice little desk. And so absolutely, that's exactly what I did. I just like started talking immediately. And I don't even think it was a day and I was back at my at my desk. So I'm sorry, Mrs. Galvez. Sorry, you had to put up with me. I know I was a lot, but I straightened out in the end. <laughs> but honestly, like you said, pushing boundaries and those, you know, smart, feisty, honorary ones. OMG, like that's good stuff. You just shape it to that turns into adult good stuff. Uh, that's, <laughs> you know I mean? that's good. Yeah. That's so there's hope for those feisty ones. A hundred percent. Those are our leaders. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. But let's get into some of our questions for today. So with your work as a therapist and previously in your role as an extension educator, you've helped with behaviors for many years. What are the most common behaviors that you've been sought to help with for young children between birth to the age of eight? Yeah. You know what? When I thought about this, I started kind of just listing them off and it's the obvious ones like, okay, kids who don't listen, kids who limit tasks, kids who um, have temper tantrums, kids who maybe have some either verbal or physical aggression. We go to bedtime routine, you know, kids who don't want to sleep in their own bed, mealtime, 
having kids who don't want to sit at the table. Like it's all the kind of quote unquote, maybe typical ones or common ones. And in all sincerity, I like to just bucket these into two, they're two giant buckets and we'll kind of reference it as we continue talking. But there's the bucket of not following directions, or maybe we could call it the bucket of compliance. And I don't want compliance to be like misinterpreted. Like I mean, little robot children, but I mean, you know, time to come inside or time to turn the TV off or last cookie or get your jammies on. Like that's compliance related following adult directions or following, you know, the routine. And then there's the temper tantrum bucket, which can be interpreted lots of different ways, but that's really just emotion. That's emotional regulation. So there's the compliance bucket and the emotional regulation bucket. Can I handle big feelings? And when I am having big feelings, what do they look like? So and that so might have been too much. Those, you've seen those common themes with behaviors. Oh, always. Yeah. And so they can mostly fall in within those categories. Always. Absolutely. It's always about compliance or emotional regulation. Yep. Yeah. So just thinking about parents and educators, what role do their relationships with the children play into guiding behavior and helping with behavior? When we think about those two buckets, those two themes of compliance and emotion regulation. There's a little kind of catchphrase and I I cannot remember it exactly how I want. And I've been thinking on it in, in a nutshell, it's behavior change, behavior guidance, whatever. And, and I'll even talk about why I say whatever, because sometimes we've like, what do we even want to call this? It actually happens. It unfolds. It grows within the context of a relationship. So if I say behavior guidance, I kind of actually think about growing little humans. Like, you know, I mean, we start little tiny people and we grow up to be big people and there's a whole bunch to learn in that process. And behaviors are just, well, everything we do. I mean, (laughs) and so as we're shaping ourselves to be good humans, if we want to call that behavior guidance, sure we can, but that actually all unfolds within the context of relationship. It's at the center of everything we're talking about. So it sounds like relationships are really critical for guiding behaviors and helping that little human develop and grow into who they're going to be. Can you give me some concrete examples of what that might look like? Yes. So something else to keep in mind as we're thinking about that is we are the most experience dependent species on the planet. And so when we are born, we are equipped with much more of that reptilian brain and we are equipped with our DNA and our temperament and some other really good things. But as we know, they are 100% dependent on an adult caregiver for an excessive amount of time not just, you know, 12 months, but years and years and years and years. And so when I say behavior like really unfolds within the context of a relationship, it's this amazing dance back and forth. Um, We call it serve and return where something happens in one person does something, the other person mimics, repeats, responds. And so there's this relational dance that happens between babies and adults And so as we are helping them grow socially and emotionally, it's actually all building upon itself and every experience leads to another experience and every connection leads to another connection. And so it's just, it's never simple. But so again, when we go back to shaping behavior and you say a concrete example, it happens within the context of a relationship. So if I don't have a relationship at all with a little tiny person, let's let's make them less than tiny. Let's say they're two or three. And I just approach them and reprimand them for doing something that they should be 
not doing, let's pretend there's an entire plethora of things that brought that child to be like in a position to maybe respond or not respond to me. They could cower, they could cry, they could lash out, they could run away, they could comply. I mean, it, it's it's a bazillion things. So just because I'm a, an adult and just because I go over to Michael and I say, Michael, stop hitting Timmy, it does not mean Michael's going to comply and stop hitting Timmy because there's there's like no context for him to be yeah, I mean, he's he's you know spent three years trying to figure this game out. And so there's a whole host of reasons why he may or may not respond and a bazillion reasons as to how he could respond. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if yeah. that went to, if that was too vague. No, I think that was like a great example of how complicated behaviors are. And there's not just like a silver bullet for figuring out a person's behavior. Like you really need to understand their context. You need to understand the relationships that they're surrounded by. So when you're helping guide behaviors or when you're helping a parent or an educator with a challenging behavior, um, it's not going to be a simple solution necessarily. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's very individualized as it should be. It needs to be individualized. And so it's not a, there's not a canned answer to give to anybody for any one thing. And so you've been helping educators and parents a lot with behaviors. And so one of my questions for you was, what is one of the most difficult aspects of helping parents with behaviors? I'm kind of guessing it might be that it's not simple. Right. Absolutely. I would say first and foremost, it's misunderstanding and misinformation. We have unfortunately not done a phenomenal job of like we've made a lot of missteps. And when I say we, I mean like human beings, we've had a lot of missteps along the way and a lot of very um, significant misunderstanding about how children should be raised and and what we should be doing. Um, And it's unfortunate. And so there's still a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding out there. So that definitely plays a part in in helping parents because we have to first just kind of be honest about that and um, kind of sift through that a bit. And then also the second misnomer is that adults should, like this should be innate. Parenting should be something that I just know how to do. And so shame on me for having to ask for help or asking, you know, having to ask other people, I should know how to do this. Eh, No, 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 no. That's a huge misunderstanding. And so those two, first and foremost, and then yes, Emily, you were correct. The third one would be every situation is unique. And so there's always more to talk about before we decide what's the right response for that family, that situation. I love that. Thanks, Carrie, for sharing that. And then you've also worked with educators as well. What's maybe difficult working with educators when they seek help with behaviors? Same. I'll I'll be a little bit of a broken record. It's misinformation, misunderstanding, thinking that because they are professionals in this arena, they should know how to do it and making the assumption that it worked for Michael. Why isn't it working for Sarah? And that's, that's a bummer because, you know, I might have been in this profession for 20 years and I might have been doing it this way and it's incredibly successful. And yet it it does not mean that every child who comes to us is in the same and, and right place, the same place to be able to be receiving. And so it's kind of like, no, we have to be open to change. We can't always fit little people into our box. We have to we have to be okay changing and being flexible. <laughs> Which can be hard because educators are stressed. They have a lot on their plate. And I think it can be frustrating if you were an educator and you're like, I know that this technique has worked in the past. Why won't it work again? You know, so just thinking about them and being compassionate to the situation that they are in as well. Well, And then add to that, I mean, what you makes that situation even more unique is the ratio. 
I mean, you know, I, I'm thinking about a, a toddler classroom that potentially could have two adults and 12 toddlers. Um, this isn't a ratio soapbox, but I could make it one. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so um, that's a different podcast. Um, but, uh, but, and so, yeah, when you say having compassion, it's like, you know, a parent who's navigating multiple ages and the stress of maybe a full-time job or maybe being home with their children all day or whatever that looks like, a single parent, a, you know, uh, someone else in the, in the situation who can help, two parents not parenting the same way. I mean, all the complexity, but then, yeah, go to educators. It's like, well, I've got either multiple ages if I'm home-based or if I'm center-based, I've got 12, three and four-year-olds. And so that individualization, that's asking a lot of people. Absolutely it is. So I think, I think takeaway would be like, have grace oh, <laughs> for yourself. You know, this is not easy. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, no, it's not easy and have grace and compassion. And yet the reason I'm kind of pausing is because I want to figure out the right way to say this. So I'm going to kind of pause for a minute. It's complicated but it's not hard. And I know that that sounds confusing because there's a saying out there, right? Where we say it's actually, it's, I don't know, what is the saying? It's simple, but not easy, or it's easy, but not simple. This situation, I want to say, yes, it's complicated, but it's honestly not hard. And that's strange for me to say that. I'm going to say something and correct me if that's wrong, but it's complicated because we have to individualize it to that child and the specific behavior that we're trying to um, work on or develop. But yet the strategies that we use to help that child to teach them um, behaviors to replace the behavior can be simple to implement. It's just figuring out what works for that child. Maybe what's the root cause of the behavior that can be what is complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, really, yeah, they're they're little people. They're two and three years old, they're four and five. I mean, trust me, I've I've worked with them for years. I get how challenging it can be, and I'm not minimizing it at all. But yes, once you kind of frame it differently for yourself, then all of a sudden it becomes sure, it becomes a little complicated, but it's it's really not it's really not hard work because they're they're quite adaptable, those little guys. <laughs> they really are. They're awesome. I love them. They're great. They they teach us just as much as we oh, teach them, I think. Yeah. What are the top three things that you want parents and educators to know about behavior guidance? And so specifically when you're, we're thinking about behaviors that challenge us. Yeah. And thanks for framing it like that behaviors. So let's just talk about like behaviors that challenge us, behaviors that really are hot buttons for me or that kind of activate or get a response or reaction out of me. Um, hundred percent, first and foremost, I want to be kind and compassionate when I say this, but it's not about you. It's never been about you. And so when you have, let's say, a one-year-old who's biting, a two-year-old who's tantruming, a three-year-old who's being dishonest and lying or hitting her, his or her friends, those behaviors do challenge us. They cause an emotional, physical reaction in us. We have feelings about them. But my number one thing I want parents and teachers to understand is it's never been about you. It's not about you. No little person wakes up in the morning and thinks to themselves, how can I make Carrie miserable today? Like that's not in their cognitive development ever, ever. Mm -hmm. They're egocentric. Don't get me wrong. It's quite egocentric, but it has nothing to do with malicious intent. <laughs> right. That's number one. Like that's my go-to framing. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's because it's not, it's never been like, how can I, how can I really get carried today? It's egocentric. Right. Thought. Right. And I can even go back to the example that I shared earlier in at the beginning of the podcast where I talked about um, being in kindergarten and 
So I was misbehaving for like a goal that I wanted. So I wanted to be at my desk in my situation. So I knew that acting a certain way would get me that not because I was trying to make somebody's day like awful. It was because I wanted something. Perfect. It was egocentric and it was, and it was appropriate. It was age appropriate. That's exactly. You're like, I get my own desk. I get my own supplies. Are you kidding me? (laughs) And so, yeah, it's never about disrespect the teacher or or trying to one-up mom or dad. Not when they're that young. Absolutely not. My second would be something I already said. We are the most experienced dependent species on the planet. We require guidance. We require instruction and we require support. And this is entirely 100% within that realm of social and emotional skills. So when I say following directions, being patient, waiting your turn, staying on task, following a routine, taking turns. Those are social skills. And then we go into emotions like managing disappointment, accepting a no answer and being okay, being sad, having, you know, like having um, a feeling like angry as every human on the planet has the right to feel. What do I do with anger? How do I express it? How do I manage it? That's like tip number two is we have to learn that. And when we stop and think about how many adults maybe aren't that great at some of the things I just listed, like think about waiting in line at McDonald's or Target and how impatient we can get and how rude people can be. And those are grownups. Or think about like taking turns and sharing like with grownups in terms of, you know, navigating a team and everyone wanting to have access to the supplies or, I mean, like these are transferable skills or like accepting disappointment. You ask your boss for something and he or she has to say, no, we have feelings. We get disappointed. We get angry. We get sad. And so I'm like, okay, these are little tiny people and they're not good at it yet. (laughs) So that's my tip number two. They need our support. And then my tip number three would be um, like, be open to learning. Because um, there's always, always, always something to be learned. And so as an adult, be open to doing different. You have to be calm to bring calm. Like oh, you have I to possess. That, I love yeah, that, Carrie. <laughs> you, have to, you have to possess calm to share calm. You have to bring, be calm to, to bring calm. Love it. Great advice. Great advice for parents and educators out there. So what is your like top favorite behavior guidance tool or tip of all time? If I have emotionally dysregulated little people around me, they are dependent on my co-regulation. And these are like, I know, kind of like, you know, therapy, science, you know, words that often parents don't talk about, like this, this idea of like co-regulate or, you know, but, but I will say that if I have a temper tantruming two or three-year-old, they require co-regulation. They are not designed to self-regulate yet. We download that into them. We actually outsource. Tiffany Fay is a, a neurologist and she's got a lovely TED, TEDx talk on this. I should share it. It's like 10 minutes. And I love how she says they outsource it. We download our calm into them. And that's actually how we are designed as human species. And this happens for years, three years, maybe four, maybe five, depending on the child's temperament, depending on the life situation, circumstances, DNA, all the things. And so you have to outsource that to them. You have to co-regulate. And one of the missteps we've taken for so long was this whole idea of timeout. And it was well-intended. Don't get me wrong. Like it was super well-intended. And I totally get that the individuals who promoted it and shared it and talked about it meant well. And yet a two or three-year-old isn't designed to be able to self-regulate. So if they're already emotionally distressed and then we separate their co-regulator from them and put them somewhere alone, and ask them to 
to self-regulate, which is a skill maybe they haven't acquired already anyway, especially if they're having an emotional like temper tantrum, we've just actually upped their distress, which is oftentimes why you'll hear parents and providers say something like, well, they were temper tantruming and like they had to sit on the step or a chair or I put them in the corner, I put them in the room and they lost it. Like they went nuts and started throwing things and they became even worse. Well, yeah, they became panicked. They yeah. became panicked because they lost mm-hmm. their source of co-regulation. And that's a misunderstanding as well. That's just that's just genuine misunderstanding, misinformation. So so that's kind of always my go-to is um, it starts with us. I guess maybe I'll change it to the, you know, you got to be calm to bring calm. Hey, it starts with us. Yeah. <laughs> it starts with us. I, I really love the idea of like downloading calm. Like I don't, yeah. in my head, it's such a good visual image of like passing your calm on t- into the kid. And so when I think of that, I also think of when I've dealt with behaviors that push my hot buttons as an educator. And so it can be challenging to remain calm when we have those hot buttons pushed by behaviors. So what is some advice for parents and educators on how to remain calm in those challenging moments? So I will offer two things. One would be a reminder that good enough is good enough. Circle Security Parenting has a phrase they call good enough parenting. God bless them. Nobody's asking anybody to be perfect. And the science tells us that, but nobody's asking anyone to be perfect. And so if you did lose your temper and you did, you know, yell something like knock it off or stop it, or, you know, and, and maybe you don't like how you responded that time, you know, a lot of grace, a lot of self-compassion. We also call it rupture and repair. It's like, yeah, you know what? We're humans. No one's, no one's attempting to be perfect. So we all get the opportunity to be able to repair every rupture that happens. So that's number one. Number two, when I say good enough is good enough, means you don't have to be perfect 100% of the time. So every time you've got a kiddo who's really distressed or pushing your buttons, sometimes you can be present and you can co-regulate. And sometimes we know you can't. And kids are pretty, you know, they're pretty resilient. And so sometimes, you know, they need, you need a break. You need a mom break, a dad break, a parent break, a teacher break. And so it's like, maybe they are going to have a little bit of a time where you need to do your own calm down in order for you to be calm, to bring calm. And that's okay too. Yeah. Transfer the timeouts to the adults, not the uh-huh. kids. <laughs> for sure. For sure. There's a little, you know, pacing and walking, breathing. And then that's, that leads me to my third one is, is really this all builds say, okay, here's my self-talk. And my self-talk goes back to, it's not about me. They're kids. They're tiny. I mean, like somebody might talk to me about a five-year-old and I am never intending to be insulting to the five-year-old, but I, my brain goes, he's a baby. Because think about it, I'm 50. So I mean, think about it, a five-year-old, he's a baby. He's an itty bitty. Now granted, (laughs) he's in kindergarten and he's playing soccer and he's helping his three-year-old sister. And so maybe in your eyes, you're thinking he's a big, but Mm -hmm. in the big scheme of things, he's He's a baby. baby. (laughs) (laughs) And so my self-talk is always, it's not about me. And he's a baby or she's a baby. And that's not ever meant to insult a child. That's to remind me who they are and the place in their life that they're in. You know what I mean? So, right. So, yeah. That makes me think of that viral video where they're like, I'm just a baby. (laughs) I don't know if you've seen (laughs) that, Carrie. Oh, Emily, I say that all the time. I'm just a baby. Just a baby. Just a baby. (laughs) Because she is. She's a baby. (laughs) She is. (laughs) Anyway, so sweet. So sweet. (laughs) Good tips and good good reminders that we don't always have to be perfect, which can ease some anxiety in parents and educators and that kids are resilient. So as long as we're there for them and we're trying our best, they're going to be okay. (laughs) 
Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Kids are going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when should a parent seek professional help for behavior guidance? So I just want to really say it's always better sooner rather than later. And I know that that, like, for example, going to the dentist, (laughs) you know, we go every six months or every year to get your teeth cleaned, to be very preventative because we don't want to end up filling cavities. And so I, I get like, I'm not saying every person should run out and seek therapy. I don't mean to imply that. I just mean you don't have to wait until there's a problem. Like you really don't have to wait until it's a cavity to go seek quote unquote professional help or some type of guidance. And that might mean listening to podcasts, reading books, attending a parenting class, watching YouTube videos. Like there's a lot of ways to kind of quote unquote seek professional help. And so that's how I like I frame that question in that bucket to be like, Shh, always, always seek professional help. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know I mean? There's lots out there. Go get it. <laughs> there's, there's a whole bunch out there by all means. Like parenting is not innate. It is not innate. It is not we learn this stuff. And so I really want to like normalize that to be like, yeah. And as lovely as our parents are and our neighbors and our grandparents and our siblings, they're probably not experts either. And I mean, maybe they are, maybe you've got an expert in the family, but (laughs) yeah, I would say um, sooner rather than later. Yeah. Before it's a problem. Yeah. Before it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Reach out to those professional sources. Where could they go? Where are some places that you would refer them to? I tell you what, Nebraska is just like a lovely, lovely, like we have this mantra. It came out of Buffett. It was like, we want Nebraska to be the very best place to be a baby. And like, we are so blessed to be here in Nebraska because there are so many people who are amazing at this. They're gifted at this. They do this. And there are so many resources that we just don't talk about enough and we don't elevate enough. One way be. I got to do a shout out to the uh, local Nebraska Extension office. So big shout out to the child.unl.edu team because they are a hands-down resource in every community across the state. There is an early childhood educator team across the state that focuses on birth to eight. And there are just some amazing resources for professionals as well as parents. I just, you know, like number one, provider resources we offer, we Extension, you guys, Emily, offer so many wonderful resources resources for professionals, early childhood professionals and providers and teachers to get um, in-service learning, ongoing um, CEU learning units. But then also like a shout out to Chime. Absolutely love that program. It's a mindfulness-based program. It is offered for early childhood professionals as well as families. And so you can do a Google search at the child.unl.edu site and look for Chime. A second amazing, amazing resource that we have is called Circle Security Parenting. I referenced it earlier in the podcast. So you can search for necosp.org, which is Nebraska, circlesecurityparenting.org. So necosp.org, check them out and find a COSP class for parents that you could sign up for and attend if you want to um, be preventative and learn more. And then finally, I want to lift up the entire organization of, well, actually there's two, shoot. One is Nebraska Children and Families Foundation. They are doing amazing, amazing work and you need to go to their website and search for all the things that they're offering. And then find the Nebraska Resource Project for Vulnerable Young Children. That's a mouthful. I understand that, but we'll get it linked in the notes. And that is your go-to if you are looking for a, like a licensed therapist who is specifically trained in the things that Emily shared at my bio that I'm trained in. These are clinical modalities specifically approved for young children birth 
through five. And so if you are going to seek therapist guidance or help for your young person, I definitely want you to go to Nebraska Babies and um, find somebody who is specifically trained in these these specific models because it's a unique population just because somebody's a therapist and they could be an amazing, amazing, amazing therapist and do beautiful things for children eight to 12. It does not mean that their skill set translates to birth to eight. And that's no disrespect for the providers who are treating children eight and up or 12 and up mm-hmm. or teenage and up, but mm-hmm. it means early childhood is its own unique specialization. And so mm-hmm. please make sure that you're finding somebody from that Nebraska Babies website who these are providers who really care about birth eight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's have a little bit of fun here. Let's play a game, Carrie. You down for that? Absolutely. Okay. Let's do behavior lightning round. So we're going to call it get involved or let it go. So I'm going to read you a scenario about a child or children. And I want you to tell us if we should get involved in this situation or if we can let it go. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. All right. I'm going to so- be terrible at this game. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how it goes. All right. So we have a group of children and they're playing cops and robbers together. The children playing the cops are pretending to shoot the robbers. Sad at this game. <laughs> And I gave you the most difficult one, probably. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. I will say that it is perfectly developmentally appropriate. And I might get a lot of like questions from this response, but it's actually very appropriately developmentally, like it's developmentally appropriate. Superhero, cops and robbers, shoot the gun, play. It is normal. It is so normal for little people to do that. They play Ninja Turtles, they play Batman and Spider-Man, they play Rescue the Princess, and it involves swords and guns and frying pans. And that's okay. <laughs> let it go. Just let, it, let go. it go. Thanks for responding on that one. That was a tough one. <laughs> Got our next one. Uh, we have a child who does not finish their meal because they don't like it. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. No, you're actually picking really good ones. Like, like I really appreciate this. Oh, um, good. <laughs> you said not finishing their meal because they don't like it. Yeah. They don't like so, the way it tastes. I love that they tasted it. Thank you. Thank you, Emily, for tasting it. <laughs> I would absolutely not force a child to finish it if they did not like the way it tastes. There's such, there's such complication when we talk about sensory stuff and oral stuff and um, taste acquisition. It is a very complex thing and it unfolds over time, a lot of time. And so if your little person took a bite of something and they don't like the bite and they spit it out, you know what, Emily, thank you so much for trying it. And let it go. Support the positive behavior that they tried it, but then just let it go. Because 100%. I think of that as an adult, like if I ordered something at a restaurant and I didn't like it, I would not want someone to force me to eat it. You know, like naturally, I'm not going to make a big deal about it that I don't like it, but I don't want to be forced to eat something either that I don't like. Right. I, I have four kids. My bookends, no, 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 every other kid, two of my kids were growing up, they were incredibly selective eaters. They had limited palates. And so they only liked a number, a small number of foods. And two of my kids would literally eat anything you you put in front of them. Well, all of my kids are 18 and up now, right? Mm -hmm. So my selective eaters are now 20 and 25. Mm -hmm. They're not selective that, they're not that selective anymore. 
Like, you know what I mean? Like these yeah. things unfold over time. So they were super, like my 20 year old, she grew up on, you know, things like chicken nuggets and mac and cheese, all the things that we know are selective. And now my 25 year old makes, you know, salads and grills chicken and, you know what I mean? She, so eats right. Chinese food, all the things. And so it's like, it just, yeah. Yeah. It unfolds over a long period of time. Need to stress over when they're no. little. No. Yeah. No. Certainly not. Yeah. Great answer. All right. Next, next one. Okay. We have a child who smears paint on the wall and you saw this happen. When you ask if they did it, they lie and said they didn't. So I have a whole little like soapbox on dishonesty. Okay. Ooh, um, I kind of want to hear it. I did just, say, <laughs> sure. This is not turning into lightning round, but I, it's no, fine. No, <laughs> I was going to say, I know. I'm so sorry. Um, first of all, never ask a question to which you already know the answer. Like shame on you. And that's, I'm not trying to like shame parents. So I shouldn't have said it like that, but I'm like, you watch the kid put the paint on the wall. Do not say, did you do that? <laughs> Why would you, what? No. So never ask a question that you already know the answer for. You're just setting them up. Number one. Right. Number two, kids are going to lie. Like I told you at the very beginning, I was such an insanely dishonest child. Why do we lie? We do it. Research. There's this phenomenal research around this arena. And honestly, the more you punish a child for lying and the more you like force a child to be honest, and I'm not doing this justice in this very short amount of time, you actually are training the child to dig their heels in more and to try and look for ways to be more dishonest. And yeah, so I, know research- the, I know the research that you're speaking of, Carrie. It's really okay. interesting. It is fascinating, yeah, right? Fascinating. And so, yeah, dig into it a little bit. It's like, you know what? Let it go. So like, my my 20 year old was also an incredibly dishonest child and i i could empathize with her because i was like girlfriend i get it like i was too <laughs> and so like i caught her lying all the time and so if i see a little person putting paint on the wall and i know they did it depends on the age i'm very hand over hand because we have to learn social skills with support and guidance and all the things and so i don't yell from across the room knock it off i walk up I'm actually physically there to be present and helpful. And I say something to the effect of, oh, wow, absolutely. We do not paint on the wall. And I take <laughs> little hands and I walk the little body into the bathroom and I wash their hands. And then I say, painting is so fun. We love painting. We know that we love it on the paper, but we need to get this off the wall. And then I help the little person clean it off the wall. So that's not an ignore it at all. Ignore mm-hmm. the lying, but in mm-hmm. fact, in fact, A, ignore the lying or B, don't even ask the question that you knew the answer to. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Because <laughs> you're just setting them up to lie. Yeah. And then it's lie. a whole nother issue. Then we're yes. dealing with two things, paint on the walls and dishonesty. And, and yeah, not worth yeah. it. I do have a question for you. I wanted to expand more. Why wouldn't you yell at them to just knock it off? Oh, because is that is that because that's modeling, like yelling at someone when you're angry? You know, depends on the age, but I'm envisioning a three-year-old and I'm not saying that depending on the capacity of that child, like if I'm cooking noodles in the kitchen and I look over and I see Carissa painting the walls, I might be like, yo, yo, yo. <laughs> like I can see me reacting impulsively, you know, in kind of a, and she would startle. I can see her little, you know, and she would look at me with these big doe eyes and I might be like, girlfriend, not on the wall. <laughs> Like I can see that unfold, but I also know the capacity of that three-year-old that I'm interacting with and his or her capacity to be able to be compliant with my verbal direction from a distance. mm -hmm. 
Whereas I also have worked in settings where I know that little person doesn't have that kind of regulation capacity Mm -hmm. and that person maybe has more of a startled response and maybe a reaction where they become more defensive Uh, because of because mm -hmm. behaviors happen in the context of a relationship. And so I'm like, okay, let's put me in a preschool setting and let's say that there's not as much of a relationship and this little person doesn't have that secure attachment they grew up with at home. And I go, yo, 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 Michael, what you doing, bud? (laughs) He might have a very different reaction than Carissa. And I have to know Michael. And so Michael might run or he might laugh at me and start painting on the wall more. And I've just turned this into a very different scenario. But that's because, again, back to the relationship and why it's not a a canned answer. Yeah. I don't know if that made sense. Yes. Yes. So with three-year-olds, just their capacity for being able to follow directions, verbal directions is not quite there. So they kind of need that like physically being moved and being guided and your presence right there. And then the second part was with the startle response that might create more behaviors or it might escalate the situation. So um, if we can, if we can try to calmly walk over and um, redirect that child. Very much so. Yep. Yes. Well, well summarized. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Well, I think that's all that we have time for. We could talk about this forever though. I mean, it's like you said, there's so much to it, Um, but please be sure to check out the resources that we've mentioned during the podcast and feel free to send your questions to our team's email, which is earlychildhood at unl.edu. Thank you so much, Carrie, for joining us on the podcast today. I appreciated all your insights and your wisdom with behaviors. Thanks for having me. I'm with you. I could talk about this stuff all day. So this is a thank blast. You. We thank might you, have thank to have you. you back to talk again. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the podcast, Emily. Thanks for all your efforts and what you're doing. Um, and thanks for having me on. I really appreciated it. Yes, you bet. We love having you. Next up is some advice from a Nebraska youngster on how to be calm. If you had to tell someone what calm meant, how would you describe it? I feel like my body, it's not like all like excited and like feeling like it's gonna like blow up. It feels like it's not gonna blow up. It feels like a volcano, but it it doesn't have any lava in it. When you feel calm, it feels yeah. like a volcano mm-hmm. like, without any lava. How do you yeah. get your lava to settle? So let, let's pretend like I think I'm going to like burst and I'm ready. Or Miss Emily, what would you tell Miss Emily to help calm your body? What's a strategy you use? I put my hands on my belly and I breathe five times. And there you have it, folks. Just take some deep breaths. Everything's going to be okay. This has been an episode of The Good Life in Early Life, a Nebraska Extension Early Childhood production with your host, Emily Manning. For more information on early childhood, check out our website at child.unl.edu. If you like the show, subscribe and tell your friends to listen. The show production team is Emily Manning, Dr. Holly Hatton, Ingrid Lindahl, Aaron Campbell, Linda Reddish, Kim Wellsant, and Katie Krause. See you next time, and thanks for listening. Bye-bye.